Welcome to American Indian Living, a program developed by the Native Education and Health Initiative to improve and enhance the health of people throughout the Native communities. American Indian Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he's ready today to help you learn more about your health. Here's Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Today we're doing another in a series of programs from a venue that's been exciting for me to take in. The venue is Nome, Alaska, and I'm actually here right now just across from the main recording equipment that is used by KQQN. in Nome, Alaska. It's one of the many affiliates that American Indian Living has throughout the United States and beyond. Sitting across from me is the general manager of KQQN, Ryan Wohler. Ryan, it's great to be with you. Thanks. I'm excited to be on the show today. Well, Ryan, I'm sure if it weren't for you, I wouldn't be here today. (laughs) Well, we're happy to have you up here. Well, thanks for rolling out the red carpet. It's been good working with you and your team over the last several days. And I've been um, really pleasantly uh, surprised to really see what the tundra looks like in wintertime. <laughs> it's pretty white. <laughs> yep. Normally, we don't try to date the show too much because this is, of course, a pre-recorded show. But we are recording this program at the end of uh, February, beginning of March of 2015. Ryan, you've... Uh, got a really interesting vision. You and I have had a chance to talk throughout the course of this trip. And one of the things that gave you, it sounds like, some of your vision, your passion for making a difference in Native Alaskan communities is the story of an individual by the name of Manilik. Am I pronouncing his name right? That's pretty close. Uh, Manilik is... uh... Uh, an interesting story that impacted me pretty much when I first came to Alaska, which has uh, been about 23 years ago now, uh, on arriving in the Kotzebue area, which is just north of us, about 150 miles just above the Arctic Circle, I learned a story of a gentleman named Manilik, who as best we can date was um, probably mid to late 1800s, mm-hmm. an Eskimo that lived in the region, and he was for all intents and purposes, a modern-day prophet. Hmm. Now, you say a modern-day prophet. When people hear that term, prophet, I mean, all kinds of things come to mind. A lot of misconceptions, that's right. Well, what uh, gives him this designation in your mind? Well, uh, Manilik received visions, and he would uh, relate a lot of these visions to his fellow um, people up there in the Kotzebue region. And I would say his uh, his biggest impact on the region was he finally broke the power of the shamans hmm. that had ruled the area for so many years. Uh, that area had really been ruled by fear. There were taboos and things you couldn't do because you would anger the spirits and bad things would happen to you. And Manila came along and presented a concept of a creator that actually wanted to have a relationship with his people. And he would go against a lot of the taboos that the shamans would decree, and nothing would happen to them. And people began to see that there was a stronger power out there uh, than the shamans and the evil spirits. Hmm. So give us some examples of some of these prophecies. Well, for example, uh, 
well, the taboos first. Uh, if they said uh, you're not supposed to whistle uh, when the Northern Lights were out, he would just go out and whistle to his heart's content and nothing uh-huh. would happen. And the shamans would say, well, you're not supposed to pick, pick berries during this season. And, uh, well, he would pick the berries and, of course, nothing would happen to him. And so he would demonstrate um, through his actions that there was a stronger power out there. But apparently whatever visions he had or something inspired him to have the confidence that he could uh, break free of these taboos, right? He did. His first encounter um, was when he was as a boy out collecting wood or doing something in the forest. He heard a voice, and the voice said, father and son. And he began to learn uh, who was behind this voice and learned that the creator God was more of a father figure Hmm. than a dictator. He also uh, began to receive visions, as we stated earlier, and they were visions of the future, things Mm -hmm. that would come to the people. And it gave the idea that this creator God was interested in their welfare and Mm -hmm. wanted them to know what was going to happen in the future, that he still had their best interest in mind, and so they would kind of know what was coming a little bit. Some of the examples were that they would use their canoes and they would go up the river, but they wouldn't have to paddle, Hmm. which was just a crazy idea in the mid-1800s. And, of course, everybody said, oh, that'll never happen. Most of the things he predicted never happened during his lifetime, so it was uh, a very difficult walk that he had to share these visions uh-huh, with people uh-huh. he talked about so so uh, presumably this was motorized boats that right he was, he was talking about motor boats mm-hmm. and uh, he would also talk about one day there would be uh, something you would hold up next to your ear and you would talk to somebody that was in another village many many miles away and and you wouldn't have to go to that village to talk to that person you could just pick this thing up and hold it up next to your ear and you could talk to him and again they thought oh this guy is crazy he doesn't know what he's talking about uh, my favorite vision was one he had of a great iron sled that would come in the sky. Hmm. And it would have fire inside of this sled that would make it go and two kayaks underneath it so it could set on the water. And out of this iron sled would crawl out a man that had white skin and a man from the village of Alakakit. And to give you some idea, Alakakit is probably the the farthest known village in that region during that time period. So it was just completely impossible. Mm -hmm. And many years later, after uh, Manilak had passed away, the first float plane that landed in that village was exactly the way he had described it. And there was a man with white skin that was the pilot. And the next person that crawled out was a man from the village of Alakakit because he had stopped to pick up a navigator. This was new territory. They'd never flown an airplane up there before, and so mm-hmm. they needed to have a navigator. And people were astounded at the accuracy of what he had predicted. You know, it's easy for us today to talk about things that were, quote, predicted in the past that have been fulfilled. But a lot of the cynics would say, well, sure, someone just made up these stories recently and <laughs> said these. Have these really been substantiated? They really have. Uh, the history of the Eskimo people is passed down, uh, like many indigenous cultures, through uh, oral history. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've had meetings where they gather many elders together. So it's not just one or two people. This is the oral history that has been passed down through the ages. And uh, it is uh, as official as it gets. Okay, and this Manilik, from what 
either you or others have told me, because he was apparently a fairly influential figure here. He was. He actually didn't just stay in the Kotzebue region, right? No, he traveled uh, quite extensively. There's examples or evidence, rather, of, of him going as far north as Barrow and even evidence that he had traveled into Canada, which in the mid-1800s involved a lot of walking and a lot of running behind a dog sled. And and so he traveled quite extensively throughout Alaska to share what he knew, but the large uh, portion of his experience was in the Kotzebue area. So if you were to give me some mileage for those who don't know Alaska, what type of range do we think that Manilik shared these prophecies and teachings? Oh, probably about uh, a 300-mile area. 300 miles uh, would be about the extent of his travels, which is pretty significant if you're walking. Yeah, definitely. So, So how does all this play into your vision? Because you've communicated to me previously that this Manilic figure was an inspiration to you, and it's impacted this radio station that is in Nome that airs American Indian Living, as well as other things. He was, uh, because he was also a healer. And I'm not talking about, uh, you know, miraculous healing, but he was interested in people's welfare, and he would help them overcome diseases through natural remedies and things like that. But it was interesting to me that the beginning of his mission began as understanding who the creator was. Hmm. And I feel like that's such an important part to healing is understanding who the creator is and how he feels about you. And that was how he began his ministry. And so that's kind of what we do with our ministry here. As a radio station, we focus largely on sharing with people uh, who the creator is. Mm -hmm. And so we broadcast a lot of programs that uh, are focused on the Word, the Bible, and defining who the Creator is and uh, how He loves you and I, how He wants to interact with us, and what His plan is for our lives. And that's kind of provides a, a foundation for um, healing in, in a lot of different uh, respects. I'm trying to think of the right words. <laughs> well, I, I, know, I, I think you're, you're coming through clearly, Ryan. Let me ask then this maybe somewhat obvious question. If you're focused on spiritual foundations of healing and who the Creator is, why would you have contacted me a few years ago wanting to carry American Indian Living? I mean, this show wouldn't, by most people's standards, uh, be felt to focus on the, the Creator. It would be more dealing with general health principles. Exactly. Exactly, because with that foundation in place, understanding who the Creator is and His desire for you to have a, a healthier life, then being able to present natural remedies and some of the traditional uh, methods we have for maintaining a healthier life just kind of goes hand in hand with that. Now, I know you have another unique window on health, both you and your wife. What is that connection? Well, my wife and I met uh, flying medevacs together. And for those of our listeners that don't understand where we are in Alaska, our nearest road is about 500 miles away. So if you're in one of our communities here and you have a situation that requires you to go to the hospital, you're going to have to go by airplane. So Mm -hmm. that's where my wife and I have worked for a number of years. Uh, I'm a pilot and my wife is a paramedic, so we've done a lot of medevacs uh, in the region. 
So you are seeing firsthand a lot of the most challenging emergent cases in this region, right? We do. We see a lot of uh, a lot of um, vehicle accidents, whether they're snow machines or ATVs. We also see a lot of lifestyle-related uh, things happening. And even the ATV and snow machine problems tend to be alcohol-related. So hmm. lifestyle issues are at the root of a lot of the medevacs that we fly. Well, we want to draw some uh, some lessons from your experience, the kind of things you've seen, because you look at some of the younger segments of the United States population, whether it's in Indian country or anywhere else, a leading cause of death is what we used to call accidents in the public health field. We now prefer to call them unintentional injuries, uh, emphasizing that these things are potentially preventable. It's not just an accident that, you know, you couldn't do anything about. Right. So you mentioned one thing that you see, the alcohol connection. Just give us an example of a call you might have where it's obvious to you that if alcohol weren't involved, it wouldn't be a, a call at all. Um, well, like I mentioned, the most common ones is uh, vehicle accidents. Uh, we responded to a call several years ago where a gentleman had uh, crashed his machine and uh, was hurt pretty bad. It was a head injury where uh, we really honestly didn't think he was going to live. <laughs> mm. And uh, so we uh, transported him, did the best we could, dropped him off at the hospital. And one of the challenges with our field, our area of this uh, medevac, is that we don't know what happens a lot of times afterwards. Right, right. And so you'll drop somebody off and think, well, uh, we did what we could for him, and he's probably not going to make it, and mm -hmm. you never hear the outcome. Mm-hmm. So, but this fellow was, alcohol was clearly involved? When... Alcohol was clearly involved, and there was very little chance that he would live, and we dropped him off, and really had nothing to offer him other than a, a prayer, mm -hmm. but it was several years later, uh, we saw him again, and we couldn't believe it. He was alive and walking and talking and healthy as could be. Really? And mentally had no uh, residual? There was some uh, some problems from the accident that uh, that were lasting, yes. So the message then isn't uh, as long as you're drinking and have accidents, if Ryan Wohler and his team are around, you're going to be okay, <laughs> huh? No, uh, we don't put all the pieces back together all the time. Listen, we got to step away, Ryan. I'm Dr. David DeRose talking with Ryan Wohler. He's the general manager of KQQN in Nome, Alaska. He's also flying people on rescue missions throughout Alaska. We've got a lot more interesting material to come. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. My name is Florence A.Q. For lunch today, I had grilled chicken and squash. I am Zuni Indian, and I have the power to prevent diabetes. My name is D. Dakota Denesosi. I turned the TV off and took my nieces and nephews for a walk. We saw two jackrabbits, an eagle, and zero cartoons. I'm from the Dene Nation, and I have the power to prevent diabetes. 
Science has proven that if we lose as little as 10 pounds by walking briskly for 30 minutes, five days a week, and make healthier food choices, we can prevent diabetes. My name is Barbara Akisapuk Curtis. I'm losing weight and being more active. I am Alaskan Inupiaq Eskimo, and I have the power to prevent diabetes. For more information on how to prevent diabetes, talk to your health care provider. For free materials, call the National Diabetes Education Program at 1-800-438-5383 and ask for the power to prevent diabetes. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. This is Meryl Streep. Over the years, I have played some characters you could call controlling, but the truth is there's so much in life we can't control. But here's something we can colorectal cancer. It affects men and women, and it's the second leading cancer killer in the U.S., which is astounding, considering it's almost entirely preventable. Here's how. Most colon cancers start as polyps, and screening helps find polyps so they can be removed before they even turn into cancer. Screening also finds this cancer early, when treatment works best. For me, screening was simple and quick. It was no big deal, except for the huge sense of relief you feel afterwards. There are several tests that you can choose from. If you're 50 or older, you should talk to your doctor. Decide which one's right for you. Take control. Do everything you can to prevent colon cancer. Screening saves lives. It could really save your life. For more information, call 1-800-CDC-INFO. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You're back with Dr. David DeRose and with Ryan Wohler. Ryan is the general manager of KQQN 89.3 FM in Nome, Alaska. Ryan, you've been sharing with us some fascinating things from the story of Manilik, this uh, native Alaskan prophet and teacher and healer uh, of yesteryear, to some of your own experience running medevac flights here in Alaska. One of the things that I find fascinating, though, is you see that part of what you can do to make a difference is not just flying planes, but actually running, helping run a radio station. How do you see radio impacting people's health in Nome? Well, a lot of times we look at medevacs and exciting life-saving events as, as sort of heroic, but at the end of the day, uh, a lot of times all we've really done is moved a person to a higher deck on the Titanic. We really haven't addressed the root problem. We might have saved a life for a moment, but what we really wanted to do, my wife and I especially, is impact people's lives for lasting change. And that's where radio, I believe, has a lot stronger possibilities for doing that because we can change how people understand their own health. We can change, uh, through that, people's lifestyles. Now, one of the things I found fascinating as we've been talking together is you've actually seen people's uh, health actually change. You've seen the radio impact their lives. And You've not been operating that long as a station, right? No, just a few years. So you told me a story about a listener who we'll call Mark. Uh, Tell us about Mark's experience. Well, Mark, we met on a medevac, uh, one of the medevacs that uh, you kind of dread because you think, well, we're probably not going to see this person again. And so there's kind of a a little bit of a cloud hanging over. Now, when you say you're not going to see him again, you mean the person's not going to make it? Probably not going to make it. 
it doesn't always happen, but you start to get a feeling after a while for some people that uh, don't look very good, and we're going to try as hard as we can, but we really don't have a lot of hopes for, for whether this is going to turn out. Mark came to us uh, from a lifetime of drinking and had what's called an esophageal varices. You could probably speak more expertly to that than I can. I'm, I'm just the pilot. But a long and short of it is is that through a, a life of drinking and hard living, that the lining in the esophagus breaks down to the point where you can bleed very easily, and it's pretty hard to put a Band-Aid on something that's inside your throat. Yeah, and since you opened the door for me to, to give my two cents worth, basically a lot of the blood supply goes through the liver. And so if a person's been drinking for many years and has cirrhosis or scarring of the liver, then that blood has to find other ways to get back to the heart, and uh, veins can enlarge in other places in the body. These are what we call these varices. Just like on your legs, you can have varicose veins, where you can get the same kind of enlarged blood vessels in the esophagus, the swallowing tube. So right. if that happens, those large vessels are uh, in great danger because they're in close proximity to the lining of the esophagus, and if something irritates the esophagus, it can irritate into now a enlarged vessel that's carrying all this blood, and people can have serious bleeding, can even die from severe bleeding. Right, and there's not a lot you can do, and, and when it happens, it goes pretty quick. So it was a difficult medevac, mm-hmm. uh, but we managed to get the patient to the hospital, and Mark was uh, conscious enough that we were able to talk with him. My wife was attending at the time. And Mark indicated that he knew why he was in the position he was. Hmm. And he wasn't happy with it, as probably most people wouldn't be. But he wanted to change. So you mean he knew why, meaning it was due to his his alcohol? He knew that it was due to the lifestyle that he had Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. the the alcohol that he'd consumed over all these years. He knew that's why he was in this position. Okay, and so he expresses to you folks in the medevac or to your wife who's in back with him that he wants to change. Right. Wanted to change, was not ready to die. I still have things to live for. I'm not ready to to pack it in yet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so my wife uh, had prayer with him offered to continue having prayer with him, was able to share some lifestyle-changing strategies and uh, pointed them to the creator that says, this guy wants you to recover too, and it's mm-hmm. a connection with him that's going to save you. And that was uh, the last we saw of him, or so we thought. <laughs> uh huh. So there's more to the story, obviously. There's more to the story. It was probably four or five years later that uh, we ran into this gentleman, Quite surprisingly, actually, didn't even recognize him because we had just assumed that that we weren't going to see him again. And so Mm -hmm, four to mm -hmm. five years later, you can imagine that it's completely drifted out of your memory. Did it take a while to recall who Mark was? It it did because uh, we were sitting there chatting um, at the table having dinner one day. It was kind of a potluck uh, feast. Everybody was gathered together, and we finally put two and two together. And when the light kind of came on, we said, wait a minute. We know who you are. We we thought you were dead. We met him actually four years ago, and and here you are sitting here in front of us. Uh huh. And Mark was excited to share the story that uh, he had taken the advice, and he had come to the Creator and said, "I have a problem that I am powerless to overcome, and I need your help." And God miraculously healed this gentleman and gave him the victory over alcohol, and he's still clean and sober today. 
And part of the interesting aspect of the story is I understand that in this spiritual journey he had, somehow he connected with KQQN, and that's one of the things that got him connected with you. Am I remembering that detail? That right? is correct. Uh, the The way we were connected is he had been listening to our radio program and uh, had come to our church as a result of one of the programs that we were airing, and we were able to connect the dots there. But it was uh, it was through the spiritual connection. Well, this is exciting, and for some of you tuning in today, no doubt you're listening very likely on a radio station that does carry American Indian Living. It is possible you're listening to one of our Internet feeds. There's a number of networks that do stream our show on the Internet, so that is possible you're listening in that way. But I think this is a perfect time to talk about this possibility, and that is if you are not listening to a station in your community Ryan, what do you think? Uh, you've been running, helping run a radio station for a few years now. Is it something that you had to go to school for many years uh, to be able to do? Actually, uh, no. <laughs> I had no idea how to run a radio station. Um, through the efforts of Radio 74, we were blessed with a radio station here in Nome, Alaska. Radio 74 was very instrumental in uh, helping us get set up and installed the equipment for us and got our radio station up and running and we have a, a huge debt of gratitude that we'll probably never be able to repay to them but i recognized the possibilities that radio had and just uh decided to figure out how this thing works let's see see where we can go with it now radio 74 is one of a number of networks i think there's currently about four networks that carry American Indian living, Radio 74 is one of those networks. That's correct. And so in addition to being a radio network and carrying programming, they actually go out in the field and help set up radio stations? They do. Radio 74 is very active in uh, helping uh, small communities uh, install radio stations and procure the licenses that are required to, to do all of that. Now, I'm, I'm really glad that we're in Nome, Alaska, recording this show because... If we were in New York City or Chicago or L.A., someone might say, well, sure. I mean, those, you know, very accessible places, I'm sure someone would be happy to take a vacation to New York or L.A. or Chicago. But Nome, Alaska, I mean, this is really pretty amazing. So they'll go to some pretty, well, most people would call this a pretty out-of-the-way place. It's pretty out-of-the-way. It's really not on the way to anywhere. <laughs> that is true. There's definitely nothing that was on the uh Plain itinerary beyond uh, beyond Nome. It's a destination. Okay. So what I hear you saying, Ryan, is you've got a, a vision here for helping the people's health in Nome and in this whole region, and you see radio as being one link in that. You're already getting some uh, return on your investment, we might say, because you're seeing people connect with you who say radio is, is impacting us. Let me ask you this question. You have the same challenge, no doubt, that I have as a radio host. Sometimes I'm sitting recording a show like we are right now. We're having a, a nice dialogue together, but I really don't know who's going to be listening. And there's something, I think, in us that we love to connect with our listeners. Have you tried to be strategic in some ways with connecting with your listeners here in Nome? It's challenging, like you say, uh, because you don't know if anybody's listening. And sometimes you just have to take a step out in faith and go, well, maybe somebody's listening and, and uh, present the information out there. At the same time, it's a tremendous asset, too, because 
as we present concepts for people to change, whether it's lifestyle or diet, you know, all of these things that we present, sometimes it's uncomfortable to present that to a person face-to-face. The beauty of radio is you can just put the information out there and the listener can either take it or leave it and Mm -hmm. not feel obligated to one way or the other. They have kind of a a personal time to evaluate the information without feeling pressured by family or peers or maybe your personal relationship with that person. So it's a neat uh, opportunity to present information. Well, one of the other interesting things that I, I think you're involved with that we've already heard about is the whole medevac uh, scenario. And we, I know, we've got a lot that we could learn from some of the experiences that you've had flying these planes and your wife working as a paramedic. We want to tap into that experience and also gain some other insights on where radio may be going in northern Alaska and some ideas for our listeners who may be looking at similar, uh, similar opportunities to serve their communities. We will be back with uh, Ryan Wohler. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. We've got a lot more to come. Don't go away. We will be right back. American Indian Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. I'm Karen, and two very important people in my life, my husband and my father, have been diagnosed with atrial fibrillation. Atrial fibrillation, or AFib, is a type of irregular heartbeat. People with AFib are five times more likely to have a stroke than people without AFib. Talk with a healthcare professional today about your risk and learn how to manage AFib to prevent a stroke. Visit stroke.org slash AFib to learn more. My name is Mira Batra. I have been in this country 32 years, and this is how I live united. America has always been the land of promise, and in my community, many families have come for a better life. Coming from another culture myself, I know the desire to become part of a community, to feel at home, and to gain the tools for our children and families to succeed. So I advocate for these families with United Way. United Way empowers them to look beyond their histories and to see what opportunities are available. We help them get involved with their kids' schools, network within the community, and when we do, we unite them. We make the community stronger. What I do is something I wish someone had done for me, and I am so grateful I am able to. My name is Meera Batra. I help families see opportunities and succeed. I don't just wear the shirt. I live it. Give. Advocate. Volunteer. Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Did you know that 63% of homes contain allergens from cockroaches? And that mice spread potent asthma triggers found in 82% of homes? It's true. Common household pests are major offenders on the list of indoor allergens. Learn what you can do to help your family breathe easier. Visit PestWorld.org. A public service message from the National Pest Management Association and the Asthma and Allergy Foundation of America. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. 
Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to our second half of today's edition of American Indian Living. Dr. David DeRose in actually the studios of KQQN, Nome, Alaska, where we're recording just one of a series of programs that we've been actually taping from this really amazing venue. We're in Nome, Alaska. Across from me, Ryan Wohler is joining me for this segment as well. Ryan, we want to speak especially about lessons learned from emergency services, especially from the medevac program in Alaska. Well, the role that I play in most medevacs is I'm the driver, so I've invited uh, Mike Owens to join us this afternoon. Mike, remind me how many years you've been flying medevacs as a paramedic here. I've been in the region now doing medevacs for 31 years. 31 years. I think he could probably uh, speak to what goes on in the back of the airplane uh, better than I can. Well, that's probably an accurate assessment. Mike, I'm so glad that you were able to pull away from your responsibilities and join us. Glad to be here. Now, a lot of people listening to your voice are wondering, is this a native Alaskan accent that we're detecting? South Nome. South Nome? Okay. In, in reality, it's from where? Uh, I'm a Floridian, uh, born and raised in the capital city of Florida. That would be Tallahassee? That's Tallahassee. Wow. So how long have you been up here in Alaska? Uh, this time since 83, originally came up in the uh, 75. Now, this is not the normal trajectory for most Floridians. It's surprising how many Southerners are up here. Is it really? Yes. I guess it is surprising because I'm acting surprised myself. Well, it's great to have you on the show. And is there a chance that they might call you away? Because I know you've got, uh, are you on duty today right now? Yes. Yes, there is a possibility I could get a call. Okay, Ryan, so be on your toes. If any of you folks are listening, if you hear a headset fall to the ground and a, a phone ring, you'll know that's Mike being called away. Well, guys, one of the questions that a lot of folks have that they don't have a lot of experience with in some places in the lower 48 is the whole issue of frostbite, hypothermia, cold exposure. I mean, it can theoretically happen anywhere. But you folks have a lot of experience with it. What, what are the take-home lessons from your work in, in medevacs here in Alaska? Well, the first thing is is proper attire. I have seen cold injuries in Florida. Okay. In, in North Florida. Uh, and uh, it's just a matter of having the proper attire. The cold, the wet, the wind is, is a tough, tough. Um, combination. I, I've dealt with individuals that, in fact, have have died secondary to cold exposure, uh, and I've dealt with many that have have received severe frostbite to various and sundry parts of other bodies. Hmm. Ryan, when you hear a calls coming through for someone with cold exposure or hypothermia, you mentioned earlier in the show there's some things you dread. Is this Routine, not a big worry, or do you get concerned about these calls? Well, initially, when calls come through uh, from my end, we kind of separate ourselves from what the issue is Mm -hmm. so that that doesn't affect my decision-making as I'm responding as a pilot. Because if I think, oh, this is a really bad emergency, that might affect um, my decisions as it regards to weather and, and influence the safety of the flight. So I usually don't find out what the call is about until after the mission is over. Oh, okay, okay. So, Mike, somebody's listening. They uh, they say, wow, a lot of Southerners like it in Alaska. 
I'm going to visit Nome in the middle of the winter. How does someone know what a, what proper attire is? Is there some way to know just by how cold you feel? Uh, no, it, it's a matter of learning how to dress. And one of the, the advantages I had, or my wife and I had when we moved up, is we had two very experienced friends mm-hmm. uh, that had lived out on St. Lawrence Island for nine years that uh, guaranteed me that I was not going to freeze to death. They'd teach me how to dress. And uh, they were very patient, and uh, they taught me a lot. And, you know, in two weeks we're going to have an event in this state that has given me some some real work over the years, and that's called the Iditarod Sled Dog Race. Hmm. So you've taken calls from mushers and uh, who are and others who are observing the race. Oh yes, oh yes. And typical problems are cold exposure related. Well, on the race, you're looking at cold. You're looking at uh, individuals that's been up for long periods of time. So you're talking about sleep deprivation and uh, metabolisms that are not necessarily, by the time they get this far out, maybe where they should be. Hmm. Well, this is a perfect time to speak about the Iditarod. I'm I'm ashamed to say it, but I've been recording programs in Nome, and we really haven't talked much about one of the things that really puts Nome on the map, right? Well, that was was a big event here. Uh, When the serum had to be brought out, and it was brought by dog team, uh, from Nanana, uh, to Nome. And, uh, it was, it was a relay. And so, yes, it was a very big event in Nome. And so the commemorative is the annual race of the Iditarod sled, uh, the actual Iditarod trail. And how long is that trail? Well, you know, when the founders put it together, they knew it was over a thousand miles. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Alaska being the 49th star, they came up with the distance is 1,049 miles. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. So the typical race is 1049. Well, that's what we say. Uh, the The race is close to 1,000 miles. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's typically run in March of each year? It is started on the first Saturday of March, no matter what the weather conditions are. It goes the first Saturday of March. And it normally runs a specific route that I gather sometimes has to be modified because of snow conditions? That is correct. Uh, On the odd years, it goes down. It comes out of McGrath to Tocotna. And right out of Tocotna, it turns south. And it goes through the old Gold Rush ghost town now of Iditarod, obviously where the name came from. Okay. On the even years, same place, instead of turning to the left and going to Iditarod, it will turn left, uh, turn right, I'm sorry, and go up through, again, gold uh, fields and uh, up to the Yukon village of Ruby. It's where it comes to it on the northern route and then goes down the river. But due to snow conditions now for the second uh, time, we have had to move the the restart of the race to Fairbanks because there's just not the snow. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, you're not just telling us about this because you've read a lot about the Iditarod. You have actually raced in that race, isn't that right? I have run both trails, the northern and the southern route. And uh, from the perspective of a musher, what are the physical challenges? Well, you know, I often make the statement you learn more about yourself than you ever wanted to know <laughs> because of the sleep deprivation uh, and the physical demands of of being out there and having to keep up with the team, keep that sled on the trail, and uh, and going down the trail like it should can be very demanding. Uh, the Alaska Range is a formidable uh, challenge to get up and over. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's an interesting race. So let me ask a question. You talk, keep talking about sleep deprivation. How long does it take typically to run the Iditarod? Well, the winters will be in here around 10 days, Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's from the restart. And uh, then that will drag out to around 14 days usually we should have everybody in, 14, 15 days at the outside. Now, that is unless we get some bad storms out there and shut the race down, which does occur. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. we have never lost anyone on the race. When I say lost, we've never had anyone die on the race. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had some close calls, but never have we had someone die on the race. So the sleep deprivation issue, you basically are just sleeping as you see fit, and you're trying to finish this race as quickly as possible? You're sleeping as time will allow. The dogs, early in the race, the dogs are going to get at least 12 hours of, of rest, for every 12 hours they run. In other words, they don't break it up that way. But in a 24-hour period, you want to rest your dogs as long as you run them, if not a little more rest. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the musher is the water boy, the cook, the nursemaid, whatever those dogs need, that's your role. So you're taking care of that team and... uh you know, some of those mushers are not real good at caring for themselves necessarily. As good at taking care of themselves as they are the team. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, my wife, being a dietitian, uh, she put together a very uh, detailed diet for me. In in my first race, from start to finish, I lost one pound. Wow! Wow! And I mean, I was weighed in that year. In Anchorage, and I was weighed out in Nome, and I I lost one pound. Wow! And there's no pit crew that can help you. Oh no, no, no! You're no. All on your own. You're huh? on your own. So Ryan, have you ever been called out to uh, attend to someone during the Iditarod race? I can't think of any times that uh, I've responded to any incidents involved with the Iditarod. So is it if someone gets into trouble, is it usually snow machines that you've got to use to reach them? Usually it will be snow machines. Now, I have responded with my dog team, but only only on one occasion to my recollection. Uh-huh. Any other lessons from cold exposure that you think our listeners should know about? Well, uh, again, the key is you want to you wanna layer. Mm-hmm. And for us out here, the wind is a huge factor, and you have to stop the wind. So we got two things we're trying to combat, the wind and the moisture. Mm-hmm. 
you have to remember that the close against your body round figure is around 97 to 98 degrees. Okay. And then the outer part of your garment is going to be the ambient temperature, maybe uh-huh. 40, 50 below zero. Okay. Somewhere between that 97 and that 50 below is a frost line. Hmm. It's where your perspiration will stop. It will freeze. Wherever that freezes will develop a frost line in your clothing and will progressively get closer and closer to your body. I see. And your garment will lose more and more of its insulation and get heavier and heavier and heavier hmm. unless you have made good preparation. Okay. Well, that is uh, an interesting concept. And I, get, I haven't heard someone put it just that way. So thanks for making that clear. So the type of fiber is going to make a difference. The number of layers, all those things are going to make a difference. Absolutely. And like I say, we've got two options. Either we can let nature determine where that moisture stops, or we can determine where that moisture stops. Mm -hmm. And the more you learn about it, the more you can take charge. Absolutely. Okay, keep warm if you're in uh, a cold environment listening to this show. But we've got a lot more insights coming up. We're going to squeeze it into our final segment of today's edition of American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose, encouraging you to stay by. Mike Owens is standing by for more great information. And uh, Ryan Waller, we'll find out whether he flies off or not. But we'll be back. You stay tuned for more. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. My name is Florence A.Q. For lunch today, I had grilled chicken and squash. I am Zuni Indian, and I have the power to prevent diabetes. My name is D. Dakota Denesosi. I turned the TV off and took my nieces and nephews for a walk. We saw two jackrabbits, an eagle, and zero cartoons. I'm from the Dine Nation, and I have the power to prevent diabetes. Science has proven that if we lose as little as 10 pounds by walking briskly for 30 minutes, five days a week, and make healthier food choices, we can prevent diabetes. My name is Barbara Akisakpuk Curtis. I'm losing weight and being more active. I am Alaskan Inupak Eskimo, and I have the power to prevent diabetes. For more information on how to prevent diabetes, talk to your health care provider. For free materials, call the National Diabetes Education Program at 1-800-438-5383 and ask for the power to prevent diabetes. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. We are here to say a word about cancer. When you talk to someone who has been diagnosed with cancer, be positive. Be supportive. That's it. Stop right there. Don't start telling them about your Uncle Vern. Or the next door neighbor. Don't be grim. Try not to disappear either. Don't cross to the other side of the street. Don't stop calling. Don't cry. Don't ever say you're living my worst nightmare. You know who you are. Here's the important part. Be positive. Be positive. Se positivo. Say these words. You will do great. Keep calling. Check in. Be a friend. Or be a new friend. Be a supportive. Positive friend. Smile. Try not to be afraid. Or act afraid. Fear is not useful. Be a funny, hopeful human being. If you come across cancer, let it transform you into your most positive self. And inspire. Urge. Fortify. Rally. Encourage someone to do great. 
This message brought to you by Cancer Survivors. For more information, to hear stories or share your own, visit DoGreatCampaign.com. Do great. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back. This time to our final segment of today's edition of American Indian Living. Dr. David DeRose at the studios of KQQN, Nome, Alaska, with me, Mike Owens, sitting across from me, and Ryan Wohler in the same position on the other side. We're talking about lessons that we can learn from dealing with emergencies in this vast region that we call Alaska. We were speaking about the Iditarod, and one of the interesting things to me as we were speaking at the break was uh, the fact that you guys sometimes get carbon monoxide calls on the Iditarod. I mean, how does someone get, I mean, there's no engines, right? Well, several years ago, we had a, um, at a checkpoint, a tent had been set up and a catalytic heater was put in that tent. Mm-hmm. And one of the problems with a catalytic heater is it puts off carbon monoxide. Well, as I mentioned earlier, mushers are sleep, sleepy. Mm-hmm. And these mushers went in to try to catch a little bit of sleep before they got out. And uh, they there were some that got seriously uh carbon monoxide poisoning Hmm. and the one that actually had picked it up was one of the mushers had gone in and when they woke up recognizing the fact the signs of dizziness uh the fast heart rate Mm -hmm. nausea and when they come out they alerted to others and we actually had two in the tent that were by that point uh, near unconscious. Really? Wow. And uh, out of that group, there was only one that finished the race. Uh-huh. Now, one of the problems, one of the spinoffs of the carbon monoxide, and this goes for people driving or flying airplanes or whatever, is at night, the carbon monoxide will affect your night vision. Oh, really? And you cannot see as good. Uh, and, you know, carbon monoxide is a real problem with airplanes, and Ryan can speak to that, but, but your night vision is greatly affected. And that race runs round the clock. Mm-hmm. And so if mushers aren't on top of their game, they can find themselves in a real critical situation because of the loss of their, their vision or whatever. So, Ryan, tell us about that. Pilots are in danger of carbon monoxide exposure? Carbon monoxide is a big danger with aircraft, uh, obviously, because when you recognize you have a problem, you can't just pull over on the side of the road and deal with it. Uh Uh, I lost a very dear friend to carbon monoxide. Uh, He was flying his airplane home and had stopped to refuel, took off again, and crashed just before he landed uh, at his home base. They didn't know why for the longest time, but they went back and they interviewed the fueler at his last fuel stop, and he says, yeah, the pilot was complaining. He, he thought he was coming down with the flu, and he went and he laid down in the back a little bit. He said he just didn't feel very good, and then he got back in his airplane and left, and 
So what we learned is that he did not recognize the symptoms for carbon oh. monoxide because it's so insidious. It does, like Mike was mentioning, those symptoms might be the same as you would feel just coming down with the flu. And so by not recognizing what it was he was dealing with, he continued to fly, continued to inhale more carbon monoxide until he got to the point where he was unable to function. And as the only person in the airplane, there was nobody else to take over. So he lost his life. So how did the carbon monoxide get into the uh, cockpit? Uh, The heater. Really? Yeah, the heater is typically, uh, in smaller airplanes, you extract the heat from the exhaust system. So if there's a, a hole that develops at that point where it interchanges, then some of the exhaust leaks directly into the cabin. Wow, wow. So this is not unheard of at all. It's not unheard of. It's something that we train for, uh, but even then you you can read about it and talk about it, but when it actually happens, it's difficult to tell what's happening sometimes. And so, again, the the signs and symptoms would be dizziness or lightheadedness, fast heart rate. What else? Nausea, headaches. Okay. Uh, Again, loss of night vision. And uh, I strongly recommend people having carbon monoxide detectors in their homes mm-hmm. uh, because it it's a it's a quiet killer. Okay. And uh, our red blood cell, the hemoglobin of the red blood cell, has a much higher affinity for carbon monoxide than it does for oxygen. Mm-hmm. And once the carbon monoxide attaches to that hemoglobin. It is very, very reluctant to turn that carbon monoxide loose, and it will build up. And it may take up to six weeks for the carbon monoxide to finally completely clear the system. Well, if you take a smoker, for instance, they've already got a carbon monoxide level that they live with. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, then they expose them to another source. They're already behind. Mm-hmm. and can be a huge life threat if it's not dealt with. Now, I learned something when I was here in Nome. It's not only the Iditarod, the the dog sled race that runs this route, but there's also something called an iron dog race. Is that running the same route as the Iditarod? Normally speaking, yes. The iron dog, except <clears throat> they come to Nome and then they'll leave Nome and go back to Fairbanks. That is, that's uh, the longest sl- uh, iron dog or snow machine race, if you will, in in the world. Okay. But now, also, uh, today, the um, the bicycles, the Iditarod bike started, and there will be people that will ride bicycles from Anchorage to Nome. There's a special kind of bike that rides on the snow? Yes, there's a special kind of person that rides that bike. <laughs> okay, well, I was going to say that's uh, I, now that's uh, I'm totally unaware of that. So you guys, through the length of this trail, whether it's snow machine, whether it's dog sled, whether it's bicycle, you're getting a number of calls that relate to issues that happen on that trail. And let's not forget the walkers. Really? Oh yes. People walk a thousand miles. They will walk that trail in the winter. In the winter. Wow. Okay, it's a rugged breed up here, huh? Alaskans are are a very rugged breed. Well, what other lessons do we have? Because folks who are tuning in from across the U.S. and beyond, 
they're uh, they're often fascinated by things that happen up here, whether it's beyond the Arctic Circle. We're not quite there in Nome or or in other places uh, in this this vast state. What other things come to mind as take home lessons for people, regardless of where they live? Well, one of the the big lessons that we learn up here is the dangers of people going out and not letting others know where they have gone. Oh, okay. Um, If you're going out hiking, snow machining, bicycles, whatever, you need to have a trip plan with Uh someone to where if something were to happen, you're, you would know where to start looking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Ryan and I have participated in search missions that have taken days because we had not a clue where the individual, in fact, was going. Okay. Uh, and some end up okay, and tragically, some have not. They They were found dead. Well, I'm looking out the window right now, and there is virtually... No landmarks. I mean, to me, to my eye in the the tundra here, I mean, I don't know if someone started wandering out there for some reason, like I hate to say uh, I was this morning, uh, how would you know which which direction someone was was thinking of going, right? Well, they would have to tell you where they had intended to go. That's usually a good start. (laughs) Yeah, but if they didn't tell anyone, I could see the point. I mean, because it's not like, you know, someone saw them a mile into their trip because there's nobody out there. That's very difficult. If you have some idea where they were heading that can help you during a search, a lot of times what will happen is the visibility decreases. People tend to turn downwind because we just naturally don't like the wind in our face. So if you know what direction the wind was blowing the day that they got lost and which direction they kind of headed off to, then the natural inclination would be to follow where the wind was blowing and see where it blew them. Okay, interesting. Well, guys, you've really expanded our appreciation for the challenges up here in Alaska. Our time, believe it or not, has slipped away, at least from my perspective, all too quickly. I wish we could have had you guys for another hour, but You're welcome back anytime. I Am I really? Yeah, anytime. I haven't, I haven't worn out my welcome and Noam? Two flights a day. Okay, Mike? Doors always open. Good. Hey, listen, you never know. For you folks who are tuning in to American Indian Living, if you're not tired of hearing about Alaska and Nome after all these uh, shows, let me know. And the door is still open for me to do some more programming. You heard it. Hopefully today's show has given you some insights into how to better care for your health. Whether it's venturing on a next excursion, whether it's cold exposure, whether it's carbon monoxide, or whether it's just reconnecting with your heritage, someone like Manilik, the uh, Eskimo prophet. Hopefully today's show has given you something to think about and some practical insights to help you keep healthy. For all of us at American Indian Living, I'm Dr. David DeRose, wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Service.